gets a sled, he's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vader's his father, they're allergic to water. She's his sister and her daughter. You watched it wrong. Hi, this is Wade. And this is Siggy, and we are finally talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We say finally because if you haven't listened to the previous episode, which was a precursor to this episode going over, oh, excuse me, unintentionally going over the entire Tarantino over, um, which I think half of this podcasting uh, duo would say don't listen to. <laughs> no, I, I think there's good stuff in there. But basically, if you, if you want to hear our thoughts over the entire Tarantino um, uh, filmography in order to prepare you for this one, go back and listen to the previous episode. But if not, if you just want to hear about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... You're in the right episode. Honestly, a Tarantino movie coming out is an event. And one we had to take, and one we had to get this out to you as soon as we possibly could. My co-host is hanging his head because this is how we started the last episode. But (laughs) it was intending to be the start of this one. So, excuse me if I'm trying to do things right this time. God. So. I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> just sitting here watching you do it right. I'm, I just want to bear witness. <laughs> so, um, I saw this uh, in the, sneak, the Thursday night preview, uh, the night before it opened, at 1040 at night. Didn't start until 11. And, uh, and I'm an older man now, so I'm a little bit tired than I thought, but it um, I, I, I was did not affect me. So but we'll see when I start talking you about are, pre- uh, you're energized. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I saw it also Thursday uh, with oh. uh, the lovely Seymour Lamar as a date night. Kids <laughs> were at away at sleepaway camp and I uh, got some Mexican food, had a tequila uh, no, what, what's the drink they put tequila in that you get at Mexican restaurants? Margarita? Then one saw a 7 o'clock show. How should we get into this? Well, you told me I get to drive this episode. You can this drive. Is technically, this is technically my episode where we're alternating who picks the movie. That's right. Um, although we're not actually alternating. But anyway, this is my episode. Well, you, Wade, just made a callback to the previous episode of You Watched It Wrong, where we went through Quentin Tarantino's career ranking his movies. What did you think about all the callbacks in this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to previous Tarantino movies? Uh, I got a sense. I'm going to answer my question. Before sure, I I'm glad because I was going to be upset because we already you already asked me this question. And I said, you know, I didn't see that many. <laughs> so thanks for putting me on the dumb seat. <laughs> so I'm I'm getting a sense that uh, when Tarantino sits down to write uh, a Tarantino movie, he says, "I'm going. I'm not just writing a movie." I'm writing a Tarantino movie. And so it's kind of like, you ever read a John Irving novel where you're reading a John Irving novel and it says, oh, this one uh, has got uh, this different set of characters in this different situation. Oh, wait, here's the bear. Oh, wait, here's where they go to Prague. Here's the rape. Here's where the hero gets big muscles. Here's, you know, and like, it feels like he's just like hitting the points he has to hit for it to be a John Irving mo- uh, novel. And it's starting to feel that way, starting with his 10th film or whatever it is, to feel that way with Tarantino where it's like, okay, here's the stuntmen, and not just any stuntmen, but Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell. <laughs> here's the oh, here's the bounty hunter who brings 
people back dead and not alive because that's more dangerous. Here's the guy emerging. Here's someone emerging from behind bright red curtains to kill Nazis with fire. Here's the the fake out uh, a historical ending that you didn't see coming because that's not what happened. <laughs> well, do you think that um... – I, mean, I was going to say, well, maybe Tarantino just likes writing about what makes him smile and laugh. And a lot of the things he makes him smile and laugh are the things that he did that he's proud of. <laughs> so he puts those in this new movie. But, I mean, the only other excuse for him making purposeful connective tissues is that he's not very bright. And that's not, you can tell that's not true. Because, like, like Scagnetti is a name he used as a parole officer in Reservoir Dogs. Then Jack Scagnetti shows up in Natural Born Killers, a movie he didn't direct, but he wrote. I think there's even a Scagnetti in True Romance? No, I don't think there is. But there's stuff throughout. You know, he peppers these little things, and it could be the, you could, you know, might not be the same name, but same first name, but definitely same last name. Yeah. He's just sharing this kind of thing, and it can get excessive and, and uh, at times. Um, but, but yeah. this one, I mean, there's like... That one, like in his head, like, oh, well, uh, uh, this person, like he, uh, what, uh, Vince Vega and, uh, the Michael Madsen character from something else, like they're brothers. Like he, you know, that's right. That, uh, uh from Reservoir Dogs, like he's like said, though, these guys are, they have the same last name. They're, they're brothers and they, but that's just, Quentin Burst, in a way, it's right? just, it's just for him because it doesn't enhance either movie. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's just, that's just like see you next Wednesday. That's the, it's, <laughs> that, the John Landis, uh, the John Landis line that appears in all of his movies. No, honestly, this time, this time I didn't. Um, maybe it was because I was too engrossed. The only times I caught something was when it was in my face, like um, red apple cigarettes ad at the end, and yeah. uh, and just, fun. just 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 his uh, stuntman, uh, uh, Kurt Russell's jacket which was just inverted colors of his stuntman Mike jacket, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and, and things like that. But the interesting thing about this movie was that, well, uh, see, I would argue that this movie is written a little bit differently than all his other movies. Oh, I, I how think, so? I think this takes a turn in a way. It, this movie has um, a man. Okay, if you notice the, the dialogue, they say they're not filled with pop culture stuff they're talking about. Because they're living it. Uh, no, they're living uh, it. Uh, they don't sit there and they say, hey, you know the song that they on the radio we like? Oh, hey, you know, uh, this is like... Uh, they don't debate that because they're living it. The only time they talk about it is when they sit down at TV and they're watching themselves on TV. Go, hey, look at that. And so and they talk talking about... Talking about Batman and Robin or talking about... But they're talking about their career. Or, yeah, That's their right. career. They're not, they're not uh, uh, consumers of pop culture... Uh, using it as a shared common language. This is their business, right? Okay. So it feels different, and um, and so they're not they're not uh, talking through a love of film. They're talking about what they're going to do tomorrow and who they're going to work with. So like it, it's it they don't have to talk pop culture in pop culture terms because they're living in pop culture. Has there been a Tarantino movie that really did that though since Jackie Brown? Oh come on! Like, um, uh, well, well, Death Proof—they're talking about we got to do the Vanishing Point thing. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. There's a Superman. What Superman one? There, there wasn't much to talk about in uh, terms of uh, yeah. of um, of Django Unchained. And heck, even you know the the bar scene in uh, in the Glorious Bastards had King Kong. You know, we talk about things. That's that, true. Okay. Yeah, they're yeah. all there. This one doesn't really. Um, but more, no, more but, but, I think it does in a different way, though. Yeah, but but exactly, it's a different way, and this this movie is a lot more. I don't want to borrow a word from a review I read, but they nailed uh, it. I think it's um it's a it's his most wistful. Cite your sources. I think the AV Club I read this morning had said wistful. Okay. That it is most wistful. I don't. Uh, t- t- I'm not totally on board with everything they said, uh, but they brought up some interesting points. So, uh, what what do you want to get into first? Because for me, this movie has two big elements to it. Uh, one is the one that they saw said had the comparison to Inglorious Bastards and what they do. The, the, revision, the revisionist history. To me, the revisionist history in this supremely worked, whereas it didn't work for me in Inglorious Bastards. So, what was the difference? The difference is okay. They're the same in a way. In the sense that Inglourious Bastard's ending was born out of, oh, what do I do? What do I do with this? What's Fuck it, let's just kill him. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. And it's kind of this revenge fantasy for, you know, this thing, this horrible thing that happened in the world. And now I get to go back and, you know, have the ugh, cathartic thing of making it right. But it didn't work for me in that one. In this one, it's different in the sense that in, in Glorious Bastards, they, um, they knew Hitler was a horrible was doing horrible things. Yeah. In this one, our quote-unquote people, well, our people we're following don't know these guys are about... Uh, spoiler alert, please don't listen to this if you haven't already, but the revisionist history is that in this movie, the uh, the, the people who have... Uh, uh, who've met, uh, Charles Manson has sent to kill the, the, the occupants of this one home, which mistakenly have Sharon Tate and her friend, Jay Sebring and, their, and her friends. Instead of that, they divert to go into Rick Dalton's home, where they are quickly dis- <laughs> they are, uh, dispensed with by uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and the Bra- reason and Brandy they the dog. switch homes is because uh, oh. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio's character goes out to yell at them because their muffler is too loud. <laughs> but then they realize, oh, that's Rick Dalton. Um, and in a way, kind of teasing what my friend was kind of saying about Inglorious Bastards, if you listen to the previous episode, of the one person in the Manson party going... These are the people that taught us to kill. They showed us killing every night. So let's go in there and take them, take them out. They were talking about. Okay. They, they, I've got a lot to say about that. Uh, how, they're, how they're saying, look, look, here's Rick Dalton. I had him on my lunchbox. I love that guy. Yeah, let's go kill him. <laughs> For me, my favorite shot in the whole movie, and it might be one of my favorite shots in all of Tarantino movies, is the last shot. Is the shot of. Uh, Sharon Tate um, has just offered Rick Dalton to come have a drink with them, and Rick Dalton accepts, leaving his new wife, who has just almost been murdered, alone in the house. <laughs> because of the whole movie, we've been f- we've been getting sharing these experiences with uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, not doing much, not saying much, but you just see that here's an innocent who's radiating her own being. And then we know what horrible thing is going to befall her. And then Kurt Russell's what seemed to be a pointless narration to me later revealed itself to be a very purposeful one. I just don't know why it was Kurt Russell. Um, 
Because his voice is basically setting cool. up the facts that we know. This happened here. This happened here. Leading to the inevitable, ratcheting up that tension like, oh, gosh, here it's come, here it's going to come, here it's going to come. And then basically the murder that ended the innocence of the 60s was averted. And that's interesting to me is that the end of the the prolonging of the innocence is a sad, pathetic happening for Rick Dalton and the rest of Hollywood now not having to grow up. It's to me, it's beautiful that this didn't befall this person who did not deserve this happening to her, who was cut short. And it just lets you instead, instead of watching, I was so, I honestly, the, 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 the Manson murders, the Sharon Tate murder, the obsession that America and the world has had with this, I do not have a taste for. I, I'm not interested. I worked on a documentary where we were outside their house. I did not want to be there. And when I, and so I was not looking forward to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was only seeing it because a it looked it, the trailers looked fun and it's a Tarantino movie. But I was really bummed that it was going to be about the Sharon Tate murders. Mm-hmm. And then to see this uh, ending that came out and just said, "This is the way it should have been for her." To me, that was very beautiful. I think that can also save as as ending to not really being a validation of uh, Rick Dalton and uh, Cliff Booth's actions because they don't know they're averting a tragedy. No, they don't. Yeah, that's my favorite shot in the movie is is that that rise above because the gates open like the gates of heaven or the gates of Hollywood or whatever because he says, imagine Roman Polanski is living right over there. I can go over there and have drinks and then like, you know, that and then when he's kind of feeling like his career is over, the gates have opened and he's walking through and then you see this angel come up to him and give him a hug. And, but to me, I'm thinking more about the angel. Going and now like, if he can only prevent that little girl from being raped, we're really in business. What? what oh, what? <laughs> Notice how the movie barely let you see Roman Polanski. Just like, no, we're not even going to touch that. <laughs> the movie barely lets you see Charlie Manson. I want to get to that later. Uh, so I understand what you're Which saying. I appreciate it. <clears throat> and I understand that that's what the, the movie's attempting to do. I got to say, I don't buy it. Really? Yeah. Okay. To say that the 60s lost its innocence at this point is just a load of horseshit. I don't buy it. I, I understand you're saying that this is what the movie's trying to do. I understand. And I agree. I think this is that is what the movie's trying to do. I don't I don't buy it. There's nothing innocent about what's happening in the world we see in, in Hollywood. Oh, no, absolutely not. Right? There's no innocence that's been preserved, um, except for Sharon Tate's personal bubble. And to me, that's all that really matters. To me, that's all that matters. I mean, okay. I think it's a weird... I think it's an interesting choice. I don't even think it's a bad choice. That if you didn't know anything about the publicity of the movie coming into it, and you were, say, a young person, or someone who... Like just doesn't know a ton about the history here. Like Charles Manson, the the name Charles Manson or Charlie Manson is never spoken in this film. Ah, oh, yeah. And so like you have to pick up on oh that guy looks like Charles Manson and oh I recognize the players in this play and so now I know where this is headed. Like there's no Manson family is mentioned. Like mm-hmm. you if you don't know like the context to pick the stuff up in, there's nothing to help you along in this movie. That's true. Right. And so it, 
so a it depends on that as a prerequisite for all of that sort of dramatic irony of Sharon Tate going seeing herself in the movie oh she has so much promise and so much youth and innocence her life uh, could have been on a happy trajectory for her, except we know what's going to happen. But mm-hmm. it's very possible as an audience member, you don't know what happened. Right. right? <laughs> if you right? don't, it's kind of like, why the heck did we follow her this whole time? <laughs> right. Like if you haven't done your homework or, you know, just have, are aware of that stuff, then that stuff's not going to work for you. Right. Right. I know the context. I knew the, I, I knew all that stuff. The Sharon Tate part of this movie still did not work for me i wasn't given any reason to care about her she's never even established as like an independent personality uh in this movie she barely has any dialogue we get to argue you don't really need dialogue in order to present a character but but well but what does she do we see her dance and be happy and and uh be pregnant and maybe just by sheer context, maybe if if not having an affair with Jay, then at least allowing Jay just to hang around for the promise of that. <laughs> I mean, it's introduced yeah, no. as a, a moment of curiosity by right. by Henry VIII as uh, Stephen Queen, which is a pretty pretty great uh, <laughs> pretty great piece of casting. You're gonna tell me that Quentin Tarantino, if he finds a character interesting, won't write some interesting dialogue for that character or find a way to present them to make them engaging to the audience. I can't believe that Quentin Tarantino finds Sharon Tate to be an interesting character. She's only interesting because she's going to die and then she doesn't die. And so I'm going to classify her Manic Pixie Doomed Girl. (laughs) All she's doing is, is radiating, oh, the promise that could have been for this, this innocent, beautiful young lady if only she weren't cut short oh she's not cut short so what was interesting about her then <laughs> well there there is a certain there's to, to me I, I do think this marks a very different way of writing for him um uh, and if you if you think about I, I i do think to myself what came first was he writing a story about a washed up movie now tv actor and then just kind of married it with a with a manson story or was he going to say, hey, I want to write something about the Manson story, or the Manson murder, and then kind of Hollywood around it? Because what's the point of watching any of this if it's not wrapped up in the Sharon Tate murders? The, I see the, 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 not the argument, but I see the, the theory, theory point out, pointed out in the AVR Club article I read this morning saying this movie is about a fear of the future. I, I see that. I, I see that. I'm not sure okay. I, I think Tarantino really does fear the future. I don't think he's, I mean, maybe he's only doing the, his 10 movie promise because he doesn't want to be a has-been. But well, I, yeah, I he's honestly, been explicit about that. I honestly don't want think he's got a has-been complex at this point. But maybe he does. I don't know. He's a bit, he seems to have put a lot of his structures in to kind of avoid that. So maybe I'm wrong. Here's how, here's why I think the use of of Sharon Tate as a device rather than a full-fledged character is somewhat uh, defensible. They're ratcheting up this tension. All her scenes are, are ratcheting up the tension of this, uh, of, of this, this light's going to be quelched. This is going to go, this is going to go south. 
and mm-hmm. in a very bad way. And um, I think that it, I think it's kind of remarkable, and I dare say um, ethical to focus on Sharon Tate rather than Charles Manson. Now, my only yeah. re- the o- my only yeah. re- my only regret that we didn't see more of Charles Manson is we didn't get to see the actor who plays him more. The guy who plays Dewey on Justified, Dewey Crow. He's great. The guy who plays Charles Manson in a Netflix series. Oh, does he? I didn't know that. Um, He looks like Charles Manson. He's great. Um, But I love the fact that they didn't get into the cult of Manson. They didn't get into... um, I mean, it does kind of seem like why, really. But you know something's wrong. But you don't, they don't, you don't really delve into why. But America had that question at the time: Why, why, why is this happening? Why are they writing on the walls in blood? Or as as Dana Gould put it, they, the thing about the Manson was they ruined murder. They took <laughs> they took a horrible thing and made it worse, and to where we couldn't in, just enjoy the quaintness of it and the finality of it. No, they had to go make it fucking disturbing, where the police would come in and go, "Oh no, oh." <laughs> No, it's ruined now. Murder's ruined. <laughs> Way to go, assholes. You ruined murder. And, and, and so to not focus on the cult of it and make people do what they did with Ted Bundy on Netflix. Oh, who else thinks Ted Bundy's hot? Ted Bundy's so hot. You know, they didn't engage the cult of Manson in order and, and risk perpetuating it. They focused on the person who lost because of their actions. And... Um, and then at the end of the movie, instead of seeing a uh, exploitative bloodbath and then gone, oh, isn't that depressing? We saw yep. we saw the per- we saw the victim come out and give someone a hug. Instead of seeing uh, their the tragedy of their b- blood and guts on the walls. Now we did see blood and guts on the walls. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they delivered on that fact and. I, I was trying to explain it. My, my wife uh, has set up a date night for next week because they, and we, uh, through a program that we have, we're able to have our son be watched. And so the only movie out there that she has interest in is seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And she set this up after I'd gone to see it. And I told her, I go, well, I have to see this for the podcast. I'm sorry, but I have to go see it. And after I saw it, I was like, you know, I, th- I don't know if she, she might appreciate it, but I'm not even sure she'll enjoy appreciating this movie. I don't think she might enjoy the experience of it and maybe wish she hadn't had it because I can see her being frustrated to the beginning and disgusted at the end. But Brad Pitt is amazing in this movie. I love Brad Pitt in this movie. I, I, I'm with you there. I, He's uh, unbelievable. Uh, good. And, um, Although there is a point when you see him continuing to smash this woman's head against everything in the room and I'm laughing my head off at it. And having this cathartic release of these shitty little murderers getting their comeuppance, going, well, wait, they haven't murdered anybody yet. Uh, it's dicey to see, take that much effort, uh, enjoyment in watching a woman's head get smashed against tables and posters and stuff Mantle like that. Pieces. Mantelpieces. Uh, continuously. And you could say, oh, he's high on acid. Yeah, but you're like, it's still, I'm, it's still not. I, I shouldn't be enjoying this this much. And the whole movie was constructed to because make she's me a murderer. In, yeah, but she. this whole yeah. movie has been constructed. If, say, say this was an original piece of work. This whole movie has been 
I mean, I mean, well, I guess it, no. It, you know, it wouldn't work if it wasn't tied to the to the historical Manson thing. So basically, right. Um, this was all designed to give me a cathartic hootenanny of watching this woman's face get burned in and another one get burned alive in a pool and then a guy getting dog on his crotch and gun in his throat and knife in his chest and everything else. I mean, all of that was set up to make those moments be so joyous for us. What I'm disturbed by is that I want to say that's disturbing, but I don't really need to say <laughs> I don't feel like saying that. And that's, that, that, that does bother me a little bit. In Tarantino's calculus clearly is people go to see movies to see violence people like to see bloody violence right True. all like the, but he does do he, you do, marvin's he, head exploding in the back of the car didn't bother oh, you as much well no marvin's head exploding in the car made me bothered about how much i liked that how much i it made me self-reflective about i can't believe i laughed when that kid's head got blown up or okay. Maurice LaMarche. That's why I love that moment so much is because it made me think about my own reaction. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that moment feature length. <laughs> and um, it all feature builds. Length. It all, I mean, well, the whole movie builds to that, right? And they set up in the beginning with Al Pacino telling, uh, um, um, I don't, the trailers make it look like Tarantino's agrees, but the movie makes it seem like he doesn't. Where, where He's talking about how uh, we had a work Dalton double feature, and I love they explore the killing, and oh, it's just a, I love the killing, and it's like there's a lot of killing, and like yeah. he's setting up that like this is kind of fucked up that we why do we why do we go to these movies why do we sit down and for our entertainment for our relaxing watch people get gruesomely murdered oh I that I didn't think that felt like a question at all really I really did I felt like that was a question. Oh, really? Yeah. In what way? How is that submitted for debate uh, rather than just like taken as a as a given? Well, my question to you is, is do you do you think it's not a given? Do you think it's not possible that it's a question because it's made by Quentin Tarantino? I just think in the way that that moment was presented, it, I didn't think well, it was. Well, Pacino looks ridiculous. And nothing I. What what else was in the uh, in the movie like would have reinforced that to make me think that that would be the case? That line that the uh, the the Manson girl has at the end when she says, "These people right. taught us to kill." That, that to me clearly that line, uh, "These people taught us to kill, so we're going to go kill them." They taught us to kill by making TV shows and movies, and so let's go kill them in real life. Right. Was clearly presented for mockery. She's saying it is like a, a crypt out hippie man, and well, like, and she gets punished for having that thought. That's that's very true. That's for, that's for true. acting for acting on that thought. I mean, clearly, like we're we are meant to enjoy seeing their heads get bashed in and burned alive, precisely because they made this idiotic leap that depicting a violence in fiction is anywhere close to actually performing violence in real life. Now, one could argue that the cathartic Kim's fact that they were going to pr- commit a much more gruesome murder and that that might be, you could argue that that uh, line was put there to give them a little more complication, quite like 
the Nazi in the in in uh, the Glorious Bastards when they ask him, "What'd you get these medals for?" I got them for bravery. I mean, maybe that's supposed to kind of give us a little. Maybe that's not supposed to be so. I mean, I I agree with your analysis. I think it's completely completely valid reading uh, of it to be like this is this is the line that that they're getting punished for. This is the dumbass thing that I've that me Quentin Tarantino has been blamed for. Yeah, and all throughout my entire career. Let's give it to her and then punish her. Um, but you could also say that, like, he gives a, a moment of pause of self-reflection, of honest self-reflection to this would-be murderer. You know, you know it's possible. Uh, ex- now, I've always been the, uh, uh, a proponent of exploration is not condemnation. You know, maybe that's maybe if, if it was meant kind of more in earnest or something to give us a little bit more of a to give us more pause into not seeing her as just a completely one note person, someone just to enjoy being killed. Maybe, you know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the fun that he's having as a writer to like, let's make it a little more complicated emotionally for us. That's also, I think another valid read of this, that scene. I I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like the Manson family characters are really given any (laughs) credible depth. (laughs) I don't think they're allowed any credible depth in the, in the, in this film. I don't get a sense that, like, in any way, what they're doing is presented as justifiable. Right. Oh no, not no. And also, they don't. Yeah, no, they don't give them anything. In fact, the movie makes such jokes out of uh, hating hippies that I think after a while you're just like, you know what? I don't think there's any reflection. So I think this. I think we're just supposed to all hate hippies. I think Tarantino <laughs> just hates hippies. I think, I think <laughs> him him putting the him having his characters hate hippies is the same as like Vince Vega wanting to get the guy who keyed his car. Like mm-hmm. it felt exactly like that. It reminded me of that, uh, to me, like, you know, he, he really would want to shoot the person who keyed his car, like having a, uh, a vintage car mm-hmm. and someone comes along with keys. It's like, he must think that's like the worst thing, one of the worst <laughs> things someone can do. Right? <laughs> right. Or at least he did in 90, whatever, mm-hmm. when he wrote that. Um, it felt like that to me. Like we're just supposed to accept like this as as a, as a, as a value system. But then, <laughs> but then think about it. Why, if if that were true, if that was his value system, would he would? I mean, DiCaprio looks purposely ridiculous when he runs out with his margarita pitcher in hand, his blender his blender yeah. in hand, robe, and yelling at hippies to get out of his driveway. He looks yeah. ridiculous. He and what's, what's interesting is he looks ridiculous. He's over the top. What they're, what, for all he knows, what they're doing is nothing, is nothing. They just have a loud muffler and they look, they look like hippies. Just so happens they were going to go kill his neighbors <laughs> and validate everything he believed. <laughs> yeah. The big difference is that Rick Dalton does things that are cool. And the Manson family do not. But does he? Does Rick Dalton do things that are cool? I, I'm talking about the the Tarantino value system here. Yeah, but Rick he Dalton does do things. No, Rick, uh, I, I mean, I mean, Rick Dalton. The only. But starring in a TV show is cool. Yeah, but he's he's uh, acting your ass off as the heavy and a. Uh, Timothy Oliphant pilot is cool. Yeah, but do you think that oh Timothy Oliphant, uh, given the 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 sad uh, Michael has the Michael Keaton effect of like oh a great actor, so happy he's in a Tarantino movie and then he's given a eh, 
you know, and then like, I'm like, oh, I, I was so let down by seeing that Keaton had a kind of nothing part in Jackie Brown. I was so excited for Michael Keaton to be in a Tarantino movie. And it was just kind of, uh, I mean, yeah, sure. He go. shoots the bad guy. Uh, he shoots him dead, but like there's, he doesn't get, he doesn't, he doesn't get to be cool. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Oh, come on. It's Michael Keaton. It's Timmy the elephant, I think has the same thing here. You remove Timothy the elephant movie, Timothy the elephant's part from this movie. You lose nothing. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, someone has to read lines opposite him. In that scene. <laughs> that's true. Scoot McNary will suffice. <laughs> I think just like Timothy Oliphant is just supposed to signify this is in, in our fictional world. This is another TV star. Right. Exactly. I, I, I don't think that I think that Rick Dalton does cool things and in, on paper uh, he, he's not presented as being cool doing them. I don't think. No, no. Like in his private life, he's not like he's not Fonzie cool, right? <laughs> he's falling apart. But in the in the I'm just saying in the Tarantino value system, he's contributing something <laughs> of coolness to the universe, and the the Manson family are not. He's a maker, not a taker. But don't you? But do you think that Tarantino in this movie might be questioning his value system that he's presented up until this point? Well. Tell me how you think he is. Well, I'm just. I, 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 well, well, here's one thing. I, I don't, this isn't an answer to your question. I'm going to have to. 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 I was kind of more playing devil's advocate myself there, but <laughs> it's possible. Um, I mean, I'm. I'm slated to go see this again. I'm slated. I got a date. Got a hot date with a woman who's going to be really upset at the end of the night on Friday to see it again. And uh, I tried to prevent it. She says there's nothing else. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, so. They present going to be in Italian spaghetti westerns as being like the lowest of the low. Do you think that Tarantino really thinks being in a spaghetti western is the lowest of the low? No, absolutely not. No, right. It's the so, beginning of the you know of a new act in uh, this guy's life. But he comes back going, oh, although okay, it's over. Well, it's over now. It is over because he got married. I want to. We'll, we'll yeah. get into that. <laughs> no, I, I I do think. For all the sameness, there's a lot different, and it's worthy. It's a worthy goal to take this movie a little differently than all his other things. But I do also think that this movie shows that he's been working on specific processes, and uh, this is one more exploration of them. And mainly uh, the rack, the ratcheting up of tension. The whole movie is doing that, obviously, to the end. It's just one big thing getting there to the end. I kind of think of this movie and Inglorious Bastards the same way I think of No Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading. Like, I think No Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading are the same movie. They're, they're movies that are doing the same thing. And I think Burn After Reading does it more successfully than No Country for Old Men. Hot take. Because they both have things where, like, uh, important things to the story are done off screen. Main characters are killed and dispensed with. They're both are movies about kind of like the inability to control chaos and the resignation to being that you don't really have a place in the world to be a, you can't control it. You can either stay safe or be consumed by it. And as a comedy, I think and, it's... And uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. And don't bite off more than you can chew. And as a comedy, I think more Burn After Reading does that better. Now, Old Country for All Men has some set pieces that are master works of cinema. 
But Burn After Reading, I think, works better as a movie. And I think, I think the Co- I'm starting to develop a theory where I think the Coen brothers make the same movie twice. To vary, to, they, make, they make one movie and then they make it again in a completely different genre with a completely different everything else. Well, this sounds like a different episode right. if you watched it wrong. So Let's I th- return to that. I think that this is, in a way, does a lot of the same things that Glorious Bastard does, and I think this movie does it better. And uh, the revisionist part of it, I think it works better here. I, mean, I, think, it has, I think it serves a greater purpose um, and is much richer than the, the revisionist, the cathartic, yeah, we got Hitler in, uh, in Glorious Bastards. And then... Uh, but if we look at just like the, the ratcheting of tension, let's take Jackie Brown's mall scene. Okay. And let's compare that to the George Spawn scene. That's a great scene. Right. And why is it a great scene? It's a big, long scene where there's nothing flashy that happens. There's no, um, there's no, what they would like, there's no, what they would call like Tarantino shots that you associate them with, which you realize there aren't that really that many of them crazy thing. I mean, they're, it's a very mature scene. The camera doesn't move much. It's just a simple setup of there are people in there that shouldn't be there. Is the person that should be in there in there? And is he alive or is he not there at all? And we're constantly given an extreme amount of time to figure out, to just sit there and guess. And then we get in there and it's, yeah, he's in there and he's alive and it's okay. <laughs> it, exactly what they said. <laughs> exactly what they said. Yeah. You're like, it's exactly what they said. Um, that doesn't mean that it's right. That it's like not, they're not, um, maybe they're taking advantage of him. But like, there's no tension. But like, it's this long, very long scene of justifiable tension on both sides. And there's not... There's not a lot of flash. It's just the, the setup for that is pretty great. Yeah, it is. Like the the how it's shot kind of like a horror film when he arrives and people coming keep coming out of the doors and just all the eyes on him. Yeah. And um meanwhile cut to in the, inside the house. It's squeaky. We don't know it's squeaky, although we can if, if yeah. you know anything, you you can figure out it's squeaky from uh, just like ordering, they're all sitting around watching TV and not moving. And she, can, she keeps ordering one person to go look out the door and report on what's happening back. And she never without, looks like, over her shoulder. She just knows what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And just, it's, uh, she's like in, without moving a muscle, she's in complete control of the situation. It seems like. And she, she gives him looks like she could kill him within a second. Like she's just like, she's just a hair's breath away. Yeah. Yeah, it's creepy as hell. And then when she gives it, she just goes back in and sits back down. (laughs) Yeah, setting up Squeaky from with with that camera angle and just like no no one ever moves. And just uh, the way she's like directing things while watching whatever dopey TV show they're watching on a TV on top of another TV. And then they they, might be a redneck. And then the uh, casual force of nature that is Brad Pitt. Yeah, the casual, unstoppable force. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that strolls up to that door, and then in through the that, it, it, yeah. But imagine if they had. I was trying to think what would a lesser person have done with that scene, and 
uh, and I realized, I kept going, why was I not supremely let down by that reveal? Because of mm. all that went into it. Because well, Bruce Dern is just still creepy just being <laughs> Bruce Dern. Because <laughs> you're, you're trying to wrap your head around it. Even while he sits down and goes, hey, and he turns around and wakes up. What? You're still going, what, what's going on? What's going on? And then yeah. about a minute into the scene, you're still like, what's going on? Well, and you're you're still expecting it to go south because you know, yeah, he's he's cornered. There's a dozen of them out there, right? We, uh, we we know in the back of our mind they're all potential killers. Yeah, I'm not sure of the timeline. They might have already done some murders at this point in the timeline. Mm-hmm. And then George Bond doesn't recognize him, and right. so he might turn on him, right? Like he's right. He could he could still be in a pretty tight spot, even though yeah. <laughs> Even when we find out George Spahn's okay. But imagine what a lesser person would have done with that. There would have been a swelling of music. The cameras would have been much more active. And then when they get to him, he'd be like, they'd, be, they'd try to build it up cinematically and musically to come to a crescendo and then peak to show, oh, it was nothing. And that would have been a letdown, right? That right. would have been a letdown. This just lets it play. And we're yeah. like, Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. It's masterful. It's masterful. Right. It's like you get the orgasm and the afterglow. <laughs> it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. I mean, this is why Hateful Eight was so disappointing because when he go. gets it, when he does tension right, like, there aren't many that are better. No, not at all. And it made me realize that I, it made me realize that I don't watch movies the way I used to. I used – and it, it made me very sad because I uh, used to watch movies with, I'll just go wherever you take me. We'd be like, didn't you see that coming? I was like, no, because I'm letting it go wherever they take me. Yeah. Wherever they take me, I'll go that way and I'll, that's how I'll see I try what to be. When I'm in my – when my butt's in the seat in the theater, that's the mode I'm trying to be in. Right. And lately I've been too heady. I've been too trying to figure out. Well, what are they going? What does this mean? What would I have done better? Well, I haven't seen the whole fucking movie yet, so how? Why would I be asking what would I have done better? You know, it's like it's like I'm trying not to be the critic who's going. Why didn't they make the movie I would have made? You know, but like that, unfortunately, it's creeping into my head, and I'm 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 weighing like, is this a good movie before it's over? You know, and is this but? And I realize I'm not, I'm too much in there, and I'm not letting it take me where I want because I'm sitting there questioning why am I watching so much what feels like filler. Okay, that so can just be a sign the movie's not working, though. If it, it could if it's be. It's giving you that opportunity. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. and trust me, this movie gives you that opportunity. I'm not going to lie about that. It really does, especially in the filming of Rick Dalton's TV shows. And this is where I was having the most battle in my head with what I thought was, quote unquote, good cinema. And the other part of me was going, shut up and just let me watch it. <laughs> because... I had a real problem when I was watching it with the choice that I now cerebrally think is a much better choice than I gave it, that I gave it short shrift. I was really struggling with the choice of them walking, of him doing this, filming the scenes of, of Lancer. And we mm-hmm. don't see the filmmaking equipment. We don't see the director. We don't see the crew. We literally see the world that the actor is supposed to imagine and we don't oh, we don't see any of that. I wasn't thinking of it that way. That, I was just thinking of it as we're seeing the edited there's product. No, but there's no way that the edited product will look like that. 
those old shows didn't have dolly moves like that. Those old shows didn't have um, well, the, what the, we're really the, saying that is, rich simna. This is what I said to Seymour is uh, Tarantino because Seymour said like I we were talking about the ten the ten movie cap he's placed on himself and uh, and she said well. It, I thought he would want to do uh, one of every genre. I'm like, well, he packed as many as he could into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, exactly. Okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot the western I want to shoot, and I'm just gonna make it this yeah as a but it's a, a three minute short or whatever. I ultimately saw those scenes as as this is the world the actors having to imagine, or that this is the the world, but. It's amazing we didn't see the reality of what they're doing intrude on that. It was there from the beginning. We so just we just kind of hear the the script super off screen going, yeah, the line is this, and then mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, okay, go back. Well, not until Rick Dalton breaks. Right, character. exactly. He breaks character, right. and then you kind of hear it, but you don't see him yet until they yell cut, and then there's oh, but I was so happy to see Nicholas Hammond, who plays Sam Wanamaker, the director. There was nothing that made me more happy than to know that Nicholas Hammond was in this movie. Who's he? Nicholas Hammond. Now, you know him, the director of the TV show, right? So, in, uh, yeah. in the movie. Nicholas Hammond, probably most famously, but not famous to me, most famously was one of the Von Trapp children in Sound of Music. But to okay. me, he's, he's incredibly famous as playing Peter Parker in the old TV movies of Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. That's right. The chin. Yeah, the chin, exactly. So to see him there just made me so happy. This was my Robert Forrester uh, of, uh, of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My Tom Wopat <laughs> of uh, Django, although I find out Tom Wopat may not be the nicest guy. Anywho, um, <laughs> just to see these actors like, oh, yes! So anywho, these scenes at the beginning of them were the most trying for me. Because one, I was struggling with that aesthetic choice that I ultimately decided was a good one. Or a I, I I agree. I really like that choice. And then, after his, the scene where he's when Leonardo is in his trailer yelling at himself, I'm That's so, my what? second favorite scene yeah. of the movie. The thing is, the whole theater's laughing. I'm not. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. It's an hilarious scene. They have every. I'm not saying the reaction's wrong. It's a great scene. It's a hilarious scene. I've had that same monologue myself. I've done it, that it rings for real. True. It rings, it rings so true. true. Yeah. And, and, and even to the point where he's like, you fuck it. If you don't go out there, I want to put a bullet in your head. If you don't get these lines right, if you don't shape up and get this right, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. You're going to stop drinking. You got that? And then immediately Lighter your pull, brains all over the that pool. Yeah. And, then, and then he immediately takes a drink from the thing. <laughs> and like, it's a brilliant scene. And then the next scene where he's getting it right. Or when you, the next scene is a really long scene of the TV show. And before that, I was like, why are we watching this huge scene? And now I'm sitting there riveted going, watching him succeed, watching him fail, watching him pick himself up and watching him go all within this performance mm-hmm. of him there. And um, I was mad at myself for ever thinking before, why are we watching this? This is not even part of the story. You know, because now I'm really watching his his performance is the drama. It's his you can see his you could see Rick Dalton succeeding, failing, pick, trying not to give in to despair, rise, be proud of himself, fight harder and all in 
the quality of a performance and and yeah. a, a thing and it's it's amazing it and was then, great it was great and then to see and this, I loved it from the trailer and I loved it in the movie the that's the best acting I've ever seen in my life and then how moved he is and the great fucking note <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing and that to me I realized in thinking about Jackie Brown I think that's what Tarantino was trying to do in all those walking scenes but they weren't reading what's that trying to it, do what I think he was trying to create some sort of drama that wasn't on the face of what we were seeing like that. Like, like we're watching a scene of a TV show that we know has no bearing on the show, on the, on the movie. But what we're actually doing is watching the actor inside there grow up and come into his own. And I think maybe in those walking scenes, we were try- he was trying to do something like that in Jackie Brown, and it just looked like walking. I, I read a, a, I have not seen it, but I've read an article of the new Lion King. I read a review of the new Lion King movie, and the, the writer had written that the, the animals are rendered so realistically that there is no, um, there's no way these animals can emote in a way that we can perceive it as emoting. To Just where the AA Dowd yeah, review in the I, AB Club. I don't like AA Dowd as a rule. I, I think he's he's far cite too. Cite your sources, dude. I'm sorry. I I was getting to it. <laughs> um, maybe I didn't want to promote him. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but I did. I could see what he was saying. Where he was basically saying we can't. Uh, they it's it, these big dramatic scenes that just look like two animals looking at each other. <laughs> Just staring. And while I don't think, I think that's maybe too cursory a look. Like I've seen animals with real animal faces convey lots of emotions, but I can see, I can see where he's, I I can see that happening in that type of movie. So that uh, would that animal have been a dog or a horse? Yeah, probably. They, uh, there was a great article in the um, Atlantic uh, about a month ago about how they have isolated the muscles that dogs have and wolves don't in their face wow. that makes us sympathize with dogs and not with wolves. And it's, it manipulates their eyebrows. Interesting. That's and fascinating. And the only other animal that they found that has the same muscle group that can do the same control is horses. Two animals. Is it any humans? coincidence that those are like the two that animals that we have formed the closest working relationships right. with? That's because fascinating. When, Guys, we found the most interesting thing in this podcast right here. <laughs> that a dog when a dog looks at you and it raises its eyebrows, you interpret that as an emotional response. Yeah. Um, when you could just look at the tail and you could you know. <laughs> And then uh and I, I, I was watching the other show. Oh, what was the name of the show? Brain Games. Hmm. And we saw the episode on faces. And they demonstrated how you can remove people's eyes from photographs and you'll still be able to recognize who they are. Yeah. But if you move their eyebrows, you can't. That's why I think I, people with no eyebrows is so freaky. Right. It creeps. It's, it, it, it starts to fall into the like uncanny valley for us because it seems less human yeah, because there's so much of the expressiveness of yeah. the eyebrows is what is is how you read faces. What would we do without Eugene Levy? That's right. 
But I, it gave me, it did give me uh, heightened respect for his oh, uh, performance style. He was always my favorite on SATV, always, hands down. Um, what? Not comedian powerhouse Rick Moranis? <laughs> well, I, I started watching after that part was over, I think, after they were gone. And then I went back and backtracked. But I, to believe me, Rick, Rick Moranis is a powerhouse. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I love the movie Rashomon, but I can't watch it that much because the scene, uh, the 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 woman on the horse, they remove her eyebrows, and they and the tradition is to have those little squares painted on the top corners of the yeah. forehead. That's fucking freaky. I can't watch it. I can't look at it. Yeah, um, bothers Robert me For- to no uh, end. Not Robert Forster, Robert Blake in uh, Lost Highway. I will say it doesn't bother me with the guy on Barry who has alopecia. He's Fucking funny as hell. <laughs> I don't mind. I'll watch him to the days to Cascabo. That's fun. Can I say one thing? Uh, one more thing about um, Leo DiCaprio's tantrum in the trailer. Sure. When he threatens himself to blow his own brains out, I I really didn't like that he's doing it into the camera. angled mirror so that he's looking straight into the camera. That trick never works for me because I'm always like. He's not looking at himself in the mirror. He's looking at the camera in the mirror. Yeah, that's true. Like my brain can't not see that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It took me out a little bit too. I, I that's guess, not how mirrors work. <laughs> I guess they wanted us to. I guess he wanted to make sure that we were seeing how how much that meant to him. But we could see that before. Yeah, we could see it in the I whole performance. Need didn't need it. I, I do think this is probably one of his most personal films. I would think. I'd, I'd wager that gun to my head. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, because it's it's like how I said that the pop culture isn't in the talking, it's in the world. I think he's made a bunch of movies about what he thinks is cool. He's worked in genres that he thinks is cool. He's done things solely to elevate certain... Like probably Jackie Brown was written solely, I think, to give Pam Greer... Well, it was a book before that. It's rum punch, but um, seemed like he did it mainly to give Pam Greer a vehicle. It turned out to be more than that. Uh, and I think he does things because he Kill Bill, he says, because he was inspired by Uma Thurman. Yeah, exactly. He's put them in things that things that he loves. I think this one is kind of talking more about things he feels more than any other movie he's done. So let me let me ask you this as an example, uh, maybe. So the soundtrack struck me as interesting because the Tarantino's soundtracks that have pop songs in them all feel like we're just sampling his personal record collection, right? right? And he wants exactly. to highlight some oddities that we might not have been so familiar with. Yeah. This one is like straight out of Top 40. Right. Right? Mrs. Robinson, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Like it's just – these are like – staples of of oldies radio i mean this is a fairy tale the, the that's that's why oh listeners of you watched it wrong who may have listened to our last uh episode noticed that with the very beginning we started debating the validity of having ellipsis in the title and for me i'm gonna start this up here uh i i think they're very i think it those ellipses need to be in the title because it hammers home that this isn't just uh Oh, here's a movie about Hollywood. It's like, this is a fantasy 
of Hollywood. A fairy tale. A fairy tale. This is this hammers that home. It's once upon a time. It's not once upon a time in the West or once upon a time in America. And now here's Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And so I think that's a very, I, I don't think it's um, Flash of Cool or I'm Tarantino, so I'm going to do something different. I think that's, a, that's, those ellipses are key to understanding the movie. And key I on refuse how to, to type it out <laughs> in my notes. I was bummed I couldn't put it in the project name of this GarageBand file. Like, I, I was like, oh, do I do underscore, underscore, underscore? That doesn't seem right. <laughs> <laughs> Can't put a period in the title, title track. It's going to throw it off. Yeah, no, I think it has to be there. Oh, boy. Well, I'm the one who posts it online, so it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It needs to be there. Or I will get in the Podbean myself, and I will change it. You gave me instructions on how to do it. I can do it. So you were talking about the soundtrack. Oh, just that. That was curious how, um, like, mainstream uh, mm -hmm. the the choices were. What is that? Is that you think that has more to do with the Hollywoodness of it, or the fairy taleness of it, or the personal nature of it? He he has personal memories of these are the these aren't the songs he discovered later that he thought were cool. These are the ones he was hearing in 1969. Potentially, but I also think. See, I think that this movie is a much more cohesive movie. And, I, I, and as we will cite it later in the episode, where this falls in our top, in our rankings of movies, I think this writes higher than other movies that I might, that I might like more, but because they're more disjointed. And I think this one is more cohesive of a movie uh, because he's not as often throwing in his, throwing in his hymnness as he is trying to honestly create this to create a world. And like, so to me, the addition of Stiglitz that you cited that you love so much, uh, it didn't work for me because it felt like it broke the 1970s style grindhouse title card and yeah. Sam Jackson talking over it. It's like, this isn't 1940s Europe. <laughs> And this is like, sure, this isn't Little Green Bag or... The Spaghetti Western music at the beginning already already did that. <laughs> True. The, the opening That's a, shot already ab did that. Absolutely. The point taken. But for but this one felt like it was actually capturing something, uh, trying to capture a time and then create a fairy tale off of that as opposed to just throwing in whatever he thought was cool to do. And so it, it played less like a, uh, um, a dumping of his mind than a musing of his, um, do I want to say soul? I don't know. It sounds good. Sounds good. It sounds good Had as a good sentence. Meter. I don't know. Had good meter. Might be a little tad pretentious, but some, something other than just the, the, the preferences in his head. Okay. As indulgent as the movie was, I don't think it was overindulgent i don't think it was um i don't think it broke, oh, I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it i don't think it broke itself at any point yeah i don't i don't think it's nearly his uh most self-indulgent movie no i agree with you there <laughs> other than did bruce lee need to be in this movie ha, I, I, well i'm glad it was it was funny but it is interesting that he would reduce him to this kind of that the movie almost mocks him in a way it does it um but 
You know he doesn't. You know he loves Bruce Lee. He, right? Well, he, he must think that I mean, he, is Bruce Lee is presented <laughs> to us as either uh, a kind of a puffed up, you know, creation that he wasn't the genuine badass that he presented himself as compared to these stuntmen. Or, or just a kind of or annoying. Or just Cliff. <laughs> or, yeah, uh, and, a, and a blowhard to boot. But, yeah. um, you know, he probably was that. Or just that Cliff is like a supreme badass, which I don't think I don't I don't you know, I don't think Cliff is supposed to be presented as superhuman. Nobody does. You certainly take that opinion of. Well, you're right. I don't think you're supposed to. I mean, I don't think any of those other stuntmen could best Bruce Lee who were standing around. Right. I think it's basically trying to say that only Cliff could. Right. I mean, establishes Cliff as someone who's capable of taking on three armed assailants. Right. Well, while on acid. <laughs> at that point, we were all. I, I was thinking he's at some point going to mow down everyone in that camp. Like, yeah. is that what we're going to see? I, I was totally believing he was capable of doing that, and and then you're sitting there going, "Oh no, he's on acid." This might be the one thing that. At the very least, evens the playing field. <laughs> All right. I got to talk about that scene. Okay. Here's my problem with this. I, okay. Overall, I really liked this movie. Mm-hmm. I think the Sharon Tate thing is a problem. I think this is a problem, too. See, it's funny because my, my thing is I think Sharon Tate validates the movie. But I know. We disagree on this. I I think Sharon Tate's like a, a, a whole um, – uh, and you and you and you watched it wrong. That's what it, that's what it all boils down to. I I think I made my case uh, pretty well. You pretty did. well. You did. Uh, uh, okay. In order for I want to talk about Cliff being a wife killer I, and I, what's that? That, that, that was what the next, that's doing in this movie. That right? was the next thing I was going to say. I was going to say we need to talk about this. The final, the confrontation between Cliff and the Manson family. In order for it to work dramatically and for the tension of it to work and for the payoff to work, he has to not care about them hurting Rick's wife. Yeah. Right? She's at knife point while he's sicking his dog on Tex. And then while he's dog fooding uh, the face of... (laughs) Uh, of the other one, right? Yeah. Well, this whole time, Rick's wife is at knife point. Uh, yeah. Francesca, yeah. Fabiana, what was her name? I think it's Francesca. Yeah. Francesca. E- Eli Roth. She's at knife. E- Eli Roth's wife, by the way. She's a oh, good. Really? Act- she's a good actress. I've seen her in other things. She's very good. But I feel bad. I'm sorry. I don't want to speak ill of. <laughs> Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I I don't like the man, but that's just me. Don't know him personally. <laughs> She could have made um, a fine choice. <laughs> <laughs> I would know. He makes me laugh. Um, she's at knife point. Yeah. During this whole thing. She could be. Throat slit. She, 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 you know, she, yeah, she could be, she could be dead at the end of all this be, because of his rest. And maybe she, I mean, we know that she would have been dead anyway. Right. Because right? we know what they were coming there to do. But he doesn't. Cliff doesn't, right. right? And I kept thinking, oh, no, is a dog going to get stabbed? Because if a dog's biting me and I'm holding a knife, I'm going to 
try to stab the dog, right? Right. I just kept waiting for the dog to get stabbed. And so him being on acid, like, raises the stakes for him because we don't right. believe he would have any trouble in this situation if he weren't on acid, except he doesn't – he's not sure that they're actually there. <laughs> right. And he, like – his reflexes, we don't know what they're like right now. He can still be in a person with a can of dog food like nobody's business. <laughs> yeah. And like super, super cool about it too. I wonder, did he hit her with the rat flavor or the raccoon flavor? <laughs> Which one did he lick? Was the question I, we need to find out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the wolf's tooth uh, dog. Good food for mean dogs. <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciated the design of those labels. Uh, but so he had, the acid like raises the stakes for there, but him not caring about her, right. whether she gets hurt, lowers the stakes. But we also can't enjoy him doing what he's doing. True. No, you're 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 right. Now it gives Francesca a moment to show some agency, which is then undercut by her running away. <laughs> But it's realistic. The, too, sad, the sad part is, yeah, real, it is realistic. The she's sad, not a warrior. The sad part is the movie doesn't care about her. She's actually kind of in the way in that scene. She's in the way of their friendship. She's in the right. way of like what's been fun about this movie. That's right. 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 It's like she's killing the whole. She's but, killing the whole setup. Uh, exactly. We don't even know why he married her. Right. We yeah. It's, we we it, don't know anything about it. Seems like a mistake. Like right. he did, no? but does yeah, he seem especially happy with her? We don't really know. Now later, Cliff does said, "Don't go to the hospital. Stay here with your wife." Like when he's kind of after it's all over, he's like, "Don't be an idiot. Stay here with your wife. Take care of your wife." And Rick honestly said, "Granted, because it's clear Rick has a much more intimate relationship with Cliff than he does with his wife." Oh, yeah. It's incredibly clear because he, he's like, oh, she's taking five sleeping pills. He's going to be fine. <laughs> Don't worry about that. And then he runs and off. Yeah. And Brandy's with her. And Brandy's with Brandy's Obviously. Bar- honestly. Guard her. Brandy's a better protector for her than Rick would ever be. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Flamethrower or no. Flamethrower. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I loved and I loved the vocalization of the guy sitting next to me. Uh, throughout the whole movie, but the guy sitting next to me, when, when he think when they sh- when he at the very beginning of the movie when they're going, yeah, I trained on that flamethrower for a while, and they show his flashback of his training going, yeah. oh, that that's hot. Can we can this not be that hot? <laughs> that was good. That was funny. <laughs> but yeah, so 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 uh, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, how does the um, Cliff's past uh, factor in there now? Cliff, I, I thought it was an amazing choice, or excuse me, a very potent choice to say, well, he killed his wife. And then we see the flashback. We, we see how it could happen. It's the harpoon sitting on his lap. He's got a beer. It's pointed right at her. We don't see it go off. No. I thought that was. We don't, am- know if it's, we don't know if it happened. We don't know if it happened that way. We don't know. We don't know if, we don't know if he actually killed her. We don't know if he actually killed her. We don't know if he meant to kill her. We don't know if it was an accident. We don't know if that's the way yeah. she even she died. But it certainly <laughs> that you can look at it going, oh yeah, he totally killed her. Or I think he killed her. Know, yeah. But do you think he meant to kill her? Well, do you think he meant uh, to kill her right there in that moment? 
I mean, I mean, I'm willing to, I'm willing I'm willing to, to believe it. it. It's, it's, it's hard to square because of how much we like him in the movie. But yeah. that's, that's the other thing that, that, that does, when I really start thinking about it, and I start lining up the, pu- the, the, the pieces, this part bothers me about this movie and about why it makes me question why I like it so much. But, um, I mean, you, maybe depending on, maybe it doesn't have to depend on when it was written because Tarantino has had a relationship with Harvey Weinstein for a long time, right? But if you yeah. think about it, it, this could sadly be read as a defense of men accused of crimes against women. Beca- about, or, or at least be about the loyalty you might have to said person when the entire community rejects him. And then, uh, yeah. because Cliff is a person that the entire community said, he fucking killed his wife and got away with it. We don't want anything to do with that guy. And yet the movie is about an intimate bond between Rick and this guy that the community has rejected for that act. And then the movie then goes on to craft a scenario where the audience can't help but feel the satisfaction and the amusement of the gruesome side of two women being brutally murdered, noting that context is everything. All right. Knowing that it's, you know, we know. It, but he's, you know, they come and try to kill me. I'll just just keep bashing this thing. And so the, the hero worship of a man who could dispense of them off so effortlessly by itself, you can see how it could be amusing. But in context of Tarantino's relationship and how he's in debt to someone for his career, who is so awful, you know, mm-hmm. and the loyalty that he obviously had for him for some time, because he didn't say a whole lot. And in fact, we mentioned in the last episode, Rose McGowan, I, I, I uh, found out a, a very interesting thing that um, Rose McGowan was telling Robert Rodriguez about the Weinstein thing before Grindhouse. And so he said, you know, what would be a great idea? I'm going to cast you as the lead in Planet Terror. And then they were at a party and they brought over Harvey Weinstein and he said, hey, Harvey, here is the lead of Planet Terror. So she was cast. Robert Rodriguez and Rose McGowan uh, were basically giving a fuck you to Harvey Weinstein by casting her in that. And Rodriguez was going, hey, I want her. She's in the movie. Not, let's not say she's not good on her own terms. She is. That was, yeah. She was great in that movie and perfectly cast, I think. So that was Rodriguez's response to it. And now that Tarantino has made this movie and you look at it in, in light of that relationship, you're like, oh, hmm. Oh, I kind of want Brad Pitt not to have killed his wife. Because <laughs> that just makes this really... Or if he had, it's kind of saying, look, everyone's mad at you for no reason. So maybe it would be worse if he hadn't. I don't know. So in those terms, that makes me very uncomfortable. It's like when I'm eating Chick-fil-A. I just got to shake my head while I'm doing it. I don't agree, sir. No. No, I know. I'm just kidding. I don't eat garbage food. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, well, Quote to yeah. Paul. Oh, cite Paul F. Tompkins. I was semi-quoting him there. Uh, in a brilliant bit he did, if you find, on the Pot F. Tomcast of something he did at Largo. Just brilliant bit. So, I mean, it would if it was more explicit, like... Brad Pitt was accused of asking women to watch him shower, you know? Right. Um, 
or if it was even just like some kind of uh, sexual assault, then like obviously that's what's being said. Who knows if it was even a conscious that I had that hadn't occurred to me. I think that's a great um, reading of it. It, it sadly occurred um, to me. I was I started reading articles about it because I wondered if other people were saying that and I hadn't seen it yet. Uh, and um, I'm I was surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Seymour had a great observation about um, she was wondering how much of it was um, of this movie was Tarantino uh, giving a fuck you to. Well, not only the people who have accused him of people who accused him of uh, harming actresses like during the filming process of his movies, mm. like the little girl with the the actress. Throw it on oh, the floor. Sorry, actor. It's <laughs> right. Thinks the term actors is uh, silly. Being thrown to the I floor. Ha- and I have like, to agree. I'm okay. I was wearing uh, elbow pads. Is like that being like a direct yeah. defense of himself against. Uh, <laughs> but here's the question I have: What were the actresses that accused him of this? What were they actually wearing? Were they wearing clothes that could cover elbow pads? <laughs> they were probably wearing <laughs> tank tops and short shorts. You know, well, if come you're on. crashing a car, that's the <laughs> well, that's true. elbow yes. pads aren't really going to help you. Or uh, <laughs> if you're choking um, uh, an actress because you don't think Christoph Waltz, Christoph Waltz, what the hell's his name? Christoph Waltz. Waltz, because you don't think Christoph Waltz should be doing it. You should do it instead. A little weird. That's uh, that's one of the stories. Uh, yeah, that is weird. Although I can kind of see the mindset but i would still like have a stunt man do it yeah exactly spielberg puppeteering the ripping the puppeteering of the ripping of face or take or whatever that's one thing choking your actress as the boss get a stunt man who knows trained for that shit yeah yeah totally right see see, i'm i'm of the mind that i don't think i think that the french connection should have its best picture revoked because of the the story that said as cool so the train, the train chase, chase ha- we've oh, we told have, this, okay all right. we've told the story get spanked before in this podcast yeah, i think that should be revoked for that reason I, I think it's i think it's atrocious that no one should be put at risk to die and uh, for a film and i think that the directors of that alan the midnight flyer movie i'm glad they they went to jail that's that's what should have happened it's Midnight Rider. Rider. Why do I always get that wrong? It's a Greg Allman song. I always song. say uh, Allman Brothers. Alan, Alan Parsons, Parsons Project. Project. I say it's Midnight Flyer, the Alan Parsons Project movie. When it's Midnight Rider, the Greg Allman. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. my I'm not perfect. I know you all think I am. Let me tell you something. I pull my pants down and say the wrong band names just like everybody else. I always wanted to have the line of dialogue. <laughs> I put my pants on the same way as everybody else. I roll out of my back and wave my legs in the air. <laughs> we'll make that happen for you someday. <laughs> there's a lot to be said. I feel like there's so much more to be said about this movie. I mean, I talk about how great Basic Brad Pitt is. I don't know why, but I think I have to... Uh, why am I avoiding saying that Leonardo is really good too? He's great in this. He's great in this movie. His, all his like, little twitches and uh, stutters like, are saying everything. He never had to say, why do I keep stuttering? You know, like, and I think Margot Robbie's really good with what, you know, granted, she, she's obviously got an abbreviated thing, but I think she's really good. And oh, oh, here's something we 
you were going to say you were talking about uh, how you thought the the innocence of the '60s ending that was bullshit because nothing they were doing prior to that was innocent. Well, that that's just it. They say the '50s were so innocent, and it's like, oh, if you were white <laughs> and and avoiding thinking about what you were doing, then yeah, sure, it was a great time. Well, how many times did America lose its innocence in the '60s? JFK had already been killed. Vietnam War had already turned south. So when you said that, the first thing I thought of was Cat, was Pussycat, the um, hippie helps. chick who brings Brad a pit to the ranch. Because I'm like, yeah, she's 16 and far from innocent. But if you think about it, the hippies are, are presented in this movie. If you think of what hippies were, they were trying to like a couple things. You know, the, the hippies took it even further, but the hippies were just trying to throw off the constraints that repressed everyone so much but the younger hippies gravitated to it because they hadn't yet established rules in their own life yet to know like you know they always say they said in film school you got to know the rules before you break them right know the rules and then you can break them i think the younger hippie set especially the ones that were depicted here had never been part of the rules and had just had a, a life of not following rules so that's why when they take over this poor man's property and uh, the Spawn Ranch and then just all live there, dumpster diving and following this charismatic cult leader and then doing murders for them whenever he wants, they just had never had a compass to, to say they never knew the rules before they could break them. And, and so you're right. The, the innocence, when we say innocence, are we talking about innocence in terms of they hadn't yet been exposed to the darker side of things and did not know it existed and never participated. Or is it the innocence of knowing what you're doing is wrong? So when some people say the innocence of the 60s ended, you might recharacterize that as the ignorance of the, the willful ignorance of the 60s has ended. The willful ignorance that all this we thought was just fun and games, but then we realize we're just not paying attention to the consequences or the ramifications. The STDs that are down the way, the alcoholism that's going to uh, affect you your whole life, the uh, images that you've created now burning into people's brains as like the norm, a normalizing behavior. The um, this is going to last forever, and you know because I've bought real estate in Hollywood, I'm in. You know. Because, you know, by the end of the movie, Rick Dalton has not grown up and it doesn't appear as like, and it appears like the fantasy ending of the movie allows him to continue to not be grown oh, up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He gets to keep singing along to Snoopy and the Red Baron. <laughs> so really, the was the end of an innocence such a bad thing? I mean, you can argue that probably, you know, logic will say that this fairy tale will come to a close very shortly in a different way. It'll end, uh, it'll, the innocence will end some other time, probably soon, but not this way. Or you could take it what the ellipses let you know. And they all lived happily ever after. They all lived irresponsibly ever after. <laughs> Maybe. Just a thought. Wow. Cliff seems pretty responsible for Brandy. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite scene in the movie. Actually, the whole sequence of Cliff leaving Rick's house in his little blue car and speeding down the road and going to his trailer home behind the drive-in theater. The Van Nuys drive-in, yeah. But then especially 
uh, just feeding his dog and cooking himself dinner. That's my favorite sequence of the whole movie. Yeah. All, all of the scenes of Cliff driving were great. I enjoyed all of them. Yeah. It's just fun to drive with good music on the radio. <laughs> it's it's fun to watch Brad Pitt. At least, you know, this this vintage of Brad if, Pitt is, is a lot of Jackie fun to watch. Bra- yeah, totally. If Jackie Brown had in the mall just put Robert Forrester in a car and uh, Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda in a car and they were driving around that mall like the Blues Brothers listening to music, it would have been a much better sequence. <laughs> Robert Forster in his car listening to the yes. Delphonics was a lot that of fun. Was, that was, yeah, some palpable stuff in that movie. Just touching yeah. the lipstick on his, uh, left on his lips and the Delphonics coming. Oh, boy. Yeah, did you, I, 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 I took note that I hadn't noticed it before, but when he, they cut to him driving, to Brad Pitt driving, and he's got his arm, his right arm extended on the uh, steering wheel, and I don't know if it's just Brad Pitt's arm or if they had done makeup, but he had these lines that looked, it looked like they'd done a little bit of makeup to make it look like he had a compound fracture at some point. And I wondered, has that been there the whole time? (laughs) But I just, a little trick like thing like that. I thought, Oh wow, that's kind of cool that there's like, yeah, he's a stunt man. He's probably been banged up more than most people can even comprehend. You uh, wanted to come back to an icky read on this movie. That, oh, it was, was the, the Weinstein, Weinstein thing. thing, probably. What? And then um, a death proof connection, something with the prey. The connection, what I was referring to last episode about the, the death proof comparison was I was talking about how basically the whole first act of that movie, uh, say post um, Rose McGowan in the cage getting killed, the whole butterfly and friends sequence could be excised from the movie just to, because it's just setting up that stuntman Max, a bad guy and how he's going to impact these next set of four women with Rosario Dawson. Sorry. I, whenever I think of Rosario Dawson, I go away for a little bit and come back. <laughs> Sorry. All right, fanboy. But it's not just that he's a bad guy is specifically that he right. is like, a slasher who uses his car as, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's like a film gimmick, right? It's like a movie gimmick. It's a slasher movie, but instead of a knife, it's a car. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he usually goes down with it too. <laughs> Cause there's a stuntman Mike in the hospital as well. Yeah. At the, at the, and after that. And, uh, and, uh, right, right. He, right. um, that's like part of the, he must get off on that too. I was just thinking about how, so yeah, so that is, but it's a slasher movie where he's not running down people with cars every 12 minutes. It's like 60 minutes of these women, we learning about their relationships and talking, 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 and then it's just all gone like that. Yeah. Now you could make that, you could, you could say, well, that's an argument for life and to see the value of, of the, not the value of death, but the impact of death that you can have this rich personality and then it's gone. It's not video game violence. This is a person who just got killed. So now it's no longer here. You could make that argument, but it's supposed to be a slasher movie. So why? But then if you take, then go over here to once upon a time, dot, dot, dot in Hollywood. And then you think about the Sharon Tate scenes and you go, okay, we're not watching her do much, and the thing she does is not integral to the plot, but it validates the whole movie. Because honestly, even though we don't know her, I mean, it is basically 
just the fact that we know the, the tragic loss of life that's going to occur. That part is what we are ascribing from minute one. As soon as we hear the word Sharon Tate, we know murdered pregnant woman. We know that. And so we are looking at her always through that lens. If she wasn't in the movie and Rick Dalton or Cliff Booth got killed or killed the other people, what does that mean? It's to me, then we've got kill bill. It doesn't really, it's cool, but it doesn't add up to much. Whereas here we're like, we see that what we, (laughs) what we've seen as kind of pointless as it was is, Karma turning the world different. Or not karma, but like, I, I don't know. Maybe it's like, maybe we've got, I, I, I don't know how to put it. But like, I, 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 I look at like when you spend so much time with something that's not making sense why you're watching it at that moment. And then it pays off in that way. Like, that, like I, I, I don't really like Starship Troopers. Actually, I know I don't like Starship Troopers. Oh, I love Starship Troopers. I know a lot of people do. And, and I don't like it because I didn't get it. Until the end. <laughs> and then I went, oh, I get this movie now. God damn, that was a long slog to get there to enjoying it. Uh, Fuck this movie. <laughs> I, I, I got it right away. Uh, I know. So I, know. I liked it. <laughs> you're one, you're, yeah, yeah. I'm in the minority. I know. Sorry. That. I, I don't think well, you're in the minority. Mm. Uh, I think at least video, since it's been on video, I am. Everybody finally read the the right blog posts in the decade <laughs> after. Because <laughs> that's all it takes to be suddenly be right with the world, isn't when it? When that Just movie was read fresh, the right blog posts. When that movie was fresh, I think the majority view uh, dismissed it. If I remember right. Well, this should, well, see, that's a, that's why I always cite that movie because I don't dismiss it. Because I, I go, oh, I get it now. It works. Like, he puts his hand on the brain bug. Neil Pat Doogie Hauser goes, it's afraid. And everyone cheers. And I'm like, okay, I get this movie now. And But I just, it was like, do you remember when we rode that roller coaster at Six Flags? While we listened, after listening to Todd's Plastic Man pitch for three hours in line. And then we get in Goliath at Six Flags. Okay. And we, wait a second, this isn't a good analogy. <laughs> Never mind. Not a good analogy. We'll skip that. I mean, the fact that Buenos Aires is full of blonde-haired, blue-eyed people—that <laughs> I mean, that should have been a tip-off. <laughs> True. I did see it young, and that's why. And, and actually, that's why I kind of want to revisit some of my most hated movies throughout my life. And why I'm going to propose that I think later on in the series we should do La Ventura. Because I hate Antonioni movies with a fervent passion. I have never enjoyed one. And La Ventura is my most hated movie. Second, uh, no. Um, my second fate most hated movie is Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Or Last World, Jurassic Park, excuse me. The Lost oh. World, Jurassic Park. My second, first hated movie is La Ventura. I call it La Ventura When Nature Calls. And um, or I should call it La Ventura Pet Detective is really what I should call it. But that's a little too on the nose. But I also saw it when I was 19. So I'm 43 now. I bet I'll have a different take on it. I should but, hope um, so. I, but so I'm curious. I think it would be a good you watched it wrong episode. OK. If you want to do that. All right.
We're having a um, production meeting in the middle of an episode. I like this. This is good. Everybody <laughs> should get to see a little peek into the process. Behind the red curtain. Yeah, exactly. Let's share the spreadsheet with them where we plan out the future episode. <laughs> We'll, we'll just we'll, we'll put a Google Doc link in uh, in uh, in the show notes, and you can see our uh, our process. <laughs> it's usually just drawings of dicks. No, I don't know. It's hard to in Excel. Hard to do. If you it can a draw dicks, but, yeah. <laughs> but it it's work. possible. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm going to give you the last word on uh, on Sharon Tate in this movie. I think that's where we were. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I don't know what else oh. to say. I, I, think, I think I've stated my case pretty clearly. I don't remember how we got to um, Starship Troopers and, uh, and everything else. Oh, I think I, w- I think I was trying. Oh, so, so basically I was trying to say that when you, when you create a journey to get somewhere and the end validates the beginning, it's nice if the journey actually oh. is, is joyable. I had something to say about or, that. If, if you're not like confused during it going, why the fuck am I watching this? And in uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we're watching it because we know she's going to be murdered. And what are they going to do? I firmly believe you could make a perfectly good and maybe better movie that cuts out the Manson family entirely. And it's just about Cliff and Rick and their relationship and what's happening with them. And I think that could have been a lovely movie. That's all my – that's – all my favorite parts of the movie are are there with those two leads and their relationship. Like all all my favorite parts of the movie are there. I liked all of the Manson family stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I did. I think you can cut all that out though and make a really strong movie that just focuses on those two. You know, I I said differently earlier, but at this point in in this conversation, I believe you're right. I will agree. I think the uh, Sharon Tate thing adds a a gravitas to the movie to their to the movie not necessarily to their relationship though it doesn't you're right that is that is the disconnective that is the lack of tissue there is that it gives poignancy and gravitas to us but not to them and how we've to them not at all it barely even does much for their own relationship other than just go oh my god you almost died I, I really love you, my friend. Let's, you know, let me come to the hospital with you. <laughs> but that would have happened anyway if, 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 you know. Yeah. If he, if, if Cliff had fell down a hill or something and broke his leg, he, Rick would be doing the same thing, you know. It was just kind of like, oh, my God. Of course, that obviously that would happen because he's Superman. <laughs> 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 but I got, my God, the guy next to me, I don't think I've ever heard an audience member laugh harder than when, Leonardo DiCaprio is sitting on his pool chair in the pool listening, and then the the Manson girl comes crashing through and lands in the pool, and he's like completely oblivious to what's happening. He's like, "What the fuck?" Are <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. I I had to remind myself that he did go up to her to kind of find out if she was okay before she came up with the gun and shooting. Because I thought to myself in my mind after the movie, did she just fall in his pool and he went and got the flamethrower? <laughs> it's like, don't you want to see? Maybe this person that crashed through your window and land in your pool might, might need help. <laughs> well, she's doing like the crazy possessed, waving her gun arm straight up in the air for no, right. for for no, no discernible reason. reason. And, and I did think for a second, I know your teeth is knocked out and you're in, in shock and you're just flailing around. But if you're in a pool, like chest 
up to your chest in a pool and you get shut on fire. Yeah. You'd think you'd want to, your body would say, just dip like, down. Everyone else in my row was going, go down, go down. <laughs> like, I don't know why they felt the need to move. Yeah, help the her out <laughs> in this situation. Well, it was illogical. Just go down. Yeah. The flamethrower can't get you underwater. Actually, once it's on you, the petroleum jelly, oh, I, that's, I believe, will continue to burn underwater. That's probably true. Yeah. But still, but it, still, it would have a cooling relief. <laughs> it probably gives some relief at some point. Yeah. <laughs> to the extreme temperature. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I I so know that that my wife, who has just said, you know what. I've heard your warnings. We're going to go anyway because there's nothing else that interests me. I'm going to get so much shit for not warning her. <laughs> Seymour uh, liked it better than she thought. She was really dreading getting to the Sharon Tate murder part of the movie. So she was, even though she didn't uh, didn't care for the violence, um, she was really glad it wasn't a pregnant lady that was getting. Yeah, exactly. There were no maternal anxiety flashbacks from uh, her See, own. Yeah, exactly. Childbearing. See, the- the weird thing is the movie is set up to its catharsis comes from the same place as this recent uh, Seth Meyers bit that he did. Um, he, I, I love Seth Meyers' uh, segment, uh, The Kind of Story We Need Right Now, where he finds a news sty- item that like is literally the kind of story we need to hear right now. And the one that just aired recently was um, a woman named Danielle Reno. This is real. Her car was stolen. She was at a gas station and she got out of her car and someone jumped in her car and drove off and stole her car. Well, she filed a police report like a normal person. With baby in it? No, but her cell phone and wallet was in it. So what she did was she tracked the car via her cell phone, the GPS on her cell phone, and then she was following the credit card oh, charges. like Spider-Man. Yeah, like Spider-Man. And then following the credit card charges of where they were going with her credit card and then over the course of like a couple of days, she would go into those places, do detective work, and go in and just go. She was a mom that was, didn't have any skills as a detective. She would just go in logically and go, hey, you know, did you see this person? And the gas station attendants would say, yeah, you know, he was here. And they, anyway, one person said, oh, this person was just here. It was a she. She was just here. Uh, and I heard her saying something about going to Applebee's. <laughs> And so they said, he said, so next time you're in a gas station convenient mark, better do a whisper because apparently the gas station attendants are listening. So there were three Applebee's at her hometown, this being America. So she got a couple of her friends to do a stakeout at each Applebee's that afternoon, saw the person walk in to the Applebee's that she was at. I hope they ordered the steak for their (laughs) stakeout. And then she saw the car thief walk in. She locked out, got in her car, and drove away. As Seth Meyers put it, because you know mom's got a spare key. (laughs) And then she called the police and informed them that the thief was in this restaurant and they came and arrested her. And it's kind of like, that's the satisfaction. That's the thing of like, someone fucking stole my car and I stole it back. And they got arrested. There's something so... Delicious about that. It's because it's had an Applebee's. Right. <laughs> it's all good in the neighborhood. And so, um, hot pocket. Then, um, so yeah, so that, that's obviously what Tarantino crafted here a movie where we can all feel that same way about the Manson murders. 
it's but then when you look at it through the lens of the other thing like oh this is also a movie that's set up to make me feel good about a guy shunned because he was killed his wife justifiably killing a couple of women and a douchebag guy in in gruesomely horrific ways i mean you know kind of the secret theme of this movie is that women ruin fun <laughs> They ruin bromances between actors and their stunt doubles. They ruin boat trips. They ruin fights with Bruce Lee. Yeah, but you could also... Yeah, okay, yeah. No argument there in terms of what the movie is saying. They ruin the innocence of uh, the 60s by getting murdered. <laughs> but yeah, because like, like, like Saren Tate is shown doing nothing uh, lascivious or nothing illicit. Or even really having a bad vibe or a stern word about someone or or nothing. Yeah, she is all uh, yeah, manic pixie is not a bad term for that. But I you know I think I think hopefulness also is it like gleeful hope is also another thing that she embodies. And so you're right. The, you know what? Yeah, the more I think about it, you're right. She doesn't. She's not a drag on the movie like the other women in the movie are. But uh, she is definitely not a fully... Well, I don't see... She's not meant to be one. That's the... uh, The function that the role serves isn't to be representative of all women. It's not deserving to be... It's there to be... To be the catharsis of a tragedy averted. And as such... I don't. I, I don't really mind it the way it is, and with, and, and you're right. The, the the movie could be perfectly fine without the Manson murders. It could be just fine um, as a movie about two, the two guys. It'd be a different, it would be a different movie. Because but... honestly, in the end, all I'm thinking about is how happy I am at the idea, or rather, I see the value of of a life retained rather than the the interest of of reveling in its slaughter. Uh, I don't think much about Rick and, and okay. Cliff at the end of the movie. I think about Sharon. It is a little bit weird that I'm going, well, what do I feel about Rick and Cliff at the end of the movie? I spent the majority of time with them. That's something for me to, to ponder on. Maybe I'll give you an update after my second viewing next week. All right. Let me know how date night goes. Okay, so... Maybe not a thorough discussion of everything, but probably a good time to wrap it up, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. Should we just uh, say where this fits into our overall rankings? Uh, I'm torn. Right now I have it at number four. Number four. I, I have so above what, below above what? Above Jackie Brown, below Django Unchained. So I've got Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Django, Once Upon a Time, and Jackie. Now, as I said before last episode... I felt like Django should be lower, but I couldn't justify that. And I felt like Jackie Brown should be higher, but I couldn't justify that. Once Upon a Time feels like it could be three or four at the start of this episode. After we've talked about it, it's probably four or five, but I don't know. I'm sticking it at four right now. Split the difference. I've got it at six, square in the middle, below Reservoir Dogs, above the Kill Bills. Again, Reservoir Dogs. Nah, that's probably a good spot for it. I Once Upon a Time was full of pleasures. Yeah. Full of great pleasures. I think it has a flaw at the center of it. The fact that I really want to see a movie more of... I would I would watch another movie about Cliff. <laughs> I would too. 
I would totally. I would. I would definitely be on board for that. Uh, I. I really enjoyed this movie a lot more than the Kill Bills. So that's where mm. I put it. I feel like this is one of his. Again, I feel like this is one of his most cohesive movies. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I think it's it's more com- it's more complete. It it it's it's not. Um, it didn't. The movie didn't break down at any point for me. However, I do question some of the. I don't question the core, the center of the movie, like you do, but I do question the effect of this movie told this way at this time, or this movie told this way at all. So that puts it lower for me than I think it otherwise would be if that wasn't a question. I think it would be a solid number three under Pulp Fiction if I didn't feel reservations about... Like, like Pulp Fiction made me feel... I loved how it made me question why I laughed when Marvin got his face shot shot in the face. I don't like the questions I have about how I feel with this one. I don't like... I don't like feeling, why do I like this so much when this probably means this? That does not make me feel good. I also didn't get into uh, how I think this is this Quentin's whitest movie. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. You're right. This is, I think this is whitest it is Hollywood in the sixties, but yeah. Yeah. Well, they're black people lived in LA yeah, and the they could run into one or two of this them. This is his whitest cast. Yeah, and his, weird. his least racially charged one. Yeah. I mean, he has, they said hippies, 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 like they were, Subhuman. He's, he's demonstrated bona fides in the past. I'm not saying I'm not sure that's problematic. I just no, think right. it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking at. I mean, well, wait. What about Glorious? Maybe it is problematic. What I about Glorious Bastards? Uh, so Shana's married to a black oh, guy. That's right. A black. Is uh, there a Parisian. is there a black cast member in this movie? Is there not one? Sorry, it, mu- it must be. Tim Roth was credited in the credits. I've not found him yet. He's not black. No. <laughs> What? Who am I thinking of then? <laughs> yeah, there's some minor speaking, very minor speaking roles by uh, uh, Mexican. Yeah, or at least they're referred to as Mexicans. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I've I not I think seen that's it. a one. Uh, well, you know, Bruce the Bruce the Bruce Lee former's in there, but yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's I don't. Yeah, he's got a good. He gets a good scene. All right. All right. This ending's taken forever. Yeah, all right. Tell us how we can make this episode shorter <laughs> once you've heard it and the editing is all done and it's too late. <laughs> or if you have any tips for keeping your, how you keep your uh, movie conversations with friends under three hours, we would love to yeah, hear it. Because we don't know. So email those tips to youwatcheditwrong at happypanic.net or post them at... Uh, Twitter or Facebook pages for that podcast so you can embarrass us in front of uh, our other friends. And maybe we'll be so shamed that we'll have to reissue a listener's cut with all those changes added. And we'd be glad to do so. Or give you the audio <laughs> file so that you can do the edit yourself. That would be probably better for me. <laughs> if you want to remix our theme, please do it. We'll, uh, we'll air it on one of our shows. And if you've obsessively re-edited all of Tarantino's movies so they're in chronological order, you watched it wrong. <laughs>